Hello and welcome once again to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, a podcast featuring conversation with creative people, conversation that's alive and well and thriving, and I thank you for listening. Today, another fabulous guest. Her name is Sylvia True, just the way it sounds, T-R-U-E. She's the author of a great new book called Where Madness Lies. Here's what one critic, Alex Rosenberg, author of The Girl from Krakow, said. Sylvia True's novel is a voyage into the madness of madness, tracing the Nazi seduction of Germany into the moral catastrophe of racial hygiene. The author shows us not only how the eugenics of race hygiene threaten a family held hostage by its cruelty, but how echoes of this struggle resonate years later in the safety of post-war America. Another critic writes, Five out of five stars, a captivating, heart-wrenching read as the author weaves between multi-generations in this outstanding book. It's the story of Sylvia's family told in novel form, and it's one that will have impact for a long time to come. So, without any further ado, let us welcome the author of Where Madness Lies, Sylvia True, joining us on mic. Well, the fact that your last name is True, and this is a true story, is serendipitous, but uh, what a story it is. Welcome to the podcast, Sylvia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I uh, found it fascinating. I'm a amateur student of history, World War II, and this is a part of the World War II Holocaust uh, and horrible treatment of individuals that is not necessarily covered as much. So we'll bring that to light. But this is really a, your family saga, isn't it? It, it definitely is. It, it's a family saga, not just of fleeing the Nazis. I mean, that's a big part of it. But I think it's more of a family saga of mental illness and how that gets passed down and then how the family gets through it and sort of gets to the other side, to the light, so to speak. Yeah, it's a generational tale told in two timelines. And why don't we lay out the basic structure of the story, which is based on real events, Uh, one in the mid-1930s. Why don't we start there? What's going on in the 1930s with this Jewish family in Germany? So they were a very aristocratic Jewish family. And it's basically my grandmother, who is the protagonist, really the protagonist throughout the book. Inga. Um, she cares for her younger sister, mm-hmm. um, Rigmore. And Rigmore was diagnosed with mental illness in her teens, you know, probably hysteria, depression, but she didn't get better. And my grandmother continued to try to do everything she could to help her research. They, you know, went to all sorts of famous doctors. But around that time, it was also the time of eugenics. The eugenics movement around the world, not just in Germany, was pretty big. And people believed in sterilizing feeble-minded misfits, mentally ill. So she was a part of that. And then in Germany, also after that, they started the euthanasia of mental patients. And in many ways, the whole euthanasia of mental patients can almost be seen as Germany's opening act. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. They did. They practiced basically um, building gas chambers. That's where the first gas chambers were built when we're in mental hospitals. You know, they had crematoriums, they pillaged the bodies. So, you know, in my grandmother's way, she did everything she could and ultimately couldn't help and left Germany. She fled to Switzerland. And I think she repressed an enormous amount. She had to, to survive. Mm -hmm. And in her repression, she became 
sort of really rigid and controlling. Like she couldn't control all those horrible things that happened to her and her family. So she started controlling things like her clocks had to all go off at exactly the same time every day. And she was a pretty difficult, rigid person in many ways. And then later on, then it was my turn to, you know, to become mentally ill. Well, I don't know. That's not quite the right way to say it, but I ended up in McLean here outside of Boston. And um, it was through my grandmother and my mother finally revealing all these secrets and shame of the past that, you know, the family kind of opened up and actually got much closer Mm. and finally found a new kind of freer love than we'd had before. The character. I know that was a long answer. No, I'm I'm thrilled because for people who are wanting to read this, they need to know the structure. And the second timeline involve is 1984. It involves Inga, your grandmother, and right. a character by the name of Sabine, which in turn is you, I assume. Right. And right. Um, we'll talk about that in a, in a second. But what I found myself doing, I was fascinated by the the German experience. And what I found myself doing is Googling the names of individuals and realizing, of course, they're real people. I'm talking about the Nazi doctors, uh, Dr. Bohm and and another who's an ally. We'll talk about Arnold in a moment. But these were men of science. And it's so scary and so incredible to think that they were believing that this was the proper way to dispose of the problem. It, it's just mind blowing. And yet it happened. Yeah, it is. My, it was, you know, it is mind blowing because I think that we have this general idea that. And, and, and this is no criticism to doctors, believe me, but but we we have this general idea that, you know, the doctors are educated. They would never do something like that. But if you look at the history of eugenics and um I think it was 1888, Sir Galton came up with the whole idea of eugenics. You know, the idea was to rid, you know, our race of diseases, right? right. And, and do we still believe that? In some ways, I guess we do. And I have a quote in the book from the Journal of New England Medicine where the Americans were no different. In fact, the Germans considered the Americans to be ahead in this way. And when the Nazi party, you know, got more, I don't know, prevalent, Mm -hmm. many doctors joined in Germany. Many doctors joined the Nazi party because of this whole idea of eugenics and getting rid of disease. So it was a it was applied biology to them. In a weird altruistic approach to life. It's totally bizarre, but it, it in their minds, they saw this as a scientific boon? Absolutely. Right. I mean, more doctors joined the Nazi party than any other group. And it, it and that certainly wasn't because they were out to kill all the Jews. That, that had nothing to do with it. You yeah. know, it was really about eugenics and that whole movement of, you know, eradicating disease. One of the characters from back then, I assume, is, is based on a, an actual individual is a doctor first name's Arnold and he's the one who is really torn uh well first of all he's torn for his own personal identity we'll we'll leave that alone but he's also torn right. about the prospect of seeing somebody he enjoys being with and loves actually Rigmore seeing her tortured like this talk a little bit about that individual if you will and maybe how many more there were facing this moral crisis do you think I'm assuming I'm going to guess a lot of people face the moral crisis because you know, again, with the doctors on one hand, they were like, yeah, let's get rid of all the diseases. 
on the other hand, up close, it's a really scary, painful thing to think that you're sterilizing people, that you're, you know, you're killing them. They called it mercy killing. Um, you know, you're putting them out of your misery. So, yeah, I think that there were a lot of people, I'm mm. sure, who faced that dilemma. And, and it is, in a way, a love story between Arnold and Rigmore, although for many for reasons of his and reasons of her, they couldn't, you know, they weren't actually a couple, but they certainly had a great love for each other. And in the, in the end, I mean, I think he chose the right thing, which was to sort of get all the data he could and then leave and try to get it publicized. But that was difficult too. Yeah, that was a fascinating part of the story when it comes to America. And this right. is even well before the Nazis really ramp things up and no one will listen to them. It's it's really sad, but that's the history. Now, let's fast forward now to 1984, and you describe Sabine's stay at McLean's and, of course, McLean's Hospital in Belmont. This was you. So tell us about that experience. What was it like? I. It's funny how, how much I remember. Obviously, um, I went there shortly after my um, first child, my oldest daughter, Erica, was born. So I had suffered from depression and anxiety for most of my life, but that was not allowed in our family, right? I mean, part of what ran through our family, even though my family fled from Nazi Germany, was this belief that you had to be physically and mentally perfect and you couldn't show weakness. And, you know, so it, it was difficult. And when I had Erica, I had a bad postpartum depression, but that was on top of sort of a life of depression and anxiety. And, you know, going into McLean, I was terrified. I, you know, we didn't speak of mental illness in my family. Nobody was allowed to see a psychiatrist or a counselor. We didn't have those types of problems. And here I was not only seeing, you know, just seeing a psychologist once a week, I was, you know, locked up for three months. And so initially, obviously, it was terrifying, but in the end, it was probably the best education by far of my life. Like I think about, you know, college and graduate school and whatever, and I think, where did I actually learn the most? In McLean. You know, I had, I had an amazing doctor. There was still a lot of shame. There was shame in my family, but there was, you know, it still comes, unfortunately, with shame. You talk a lot about the visits that Inga makes to McLean to visit Sabine. Again, this is all based on your experience, bringing tablecloths and flowers and trying to spruce up what is an institutional setting. Uh, that that was an interesting personality facet I picked up on her. Well, again, it, it is her to try to make everything look good, right? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a, a theme of this whole idea of the Nazis. I mean, the desire to be perfect and healthy is really anchored in people's minds through public discourse. And, you know, it's not really real, but, but anyway, we had that going through our family. So here she was trying to make everything look nice and wonderful. And also I think it, it, the reason she also had a certain, you know, she needed to control things. Like I said earlier, she came from this horrible past where she could control nothing, no matter what she tried. So here she was trying to make things better, trying to make things look better, but also trying to, I think, control ultimately what she couldn't. And the only way, I, and I use this word loosely, she ended up being able to control what was going on was revealing her secrets. 
mm-hmm. past and her trauma. Listeners might be wondering if they haven't read the book, uh, we're talking about your grandmother. What about your mother? She plays a role in a different kind of way in the book. Uh, describe that if you would. So my mother, um, my mother was a, a wonderful, fascinating person. She also fled to Switzerland with my grandmother and she became Swiss national champion figure skater. And uh, what she did to survive was basically keep busy, keep active. I mean, skating actually saved her and she happened to be phenomenal at it, obviously. Um, But she was also raised with this belief that one must always pretend to look fine and healthy and be strong. I mean, there was this time I came home. I remember it so well. It was it was really a nothing incident. But I came home from college. One of my professors, one of my chemistry professors, had told me that maybe I should think about counseling because I always thought I flunked every test and I did well on every test, whatever. I, and he suggested it. And I remember bringing it up to my mother. And my mother, who was normally very warm and open, you know, just literally slammed the door on my face and said, no child of mine will ever see one of those people. So again, this fear of mental illness that ran through the family, you know, and was passed down. If I may, the great-grandmother, Inga's mother, if you will, was of that old-school European button-down, my way or the highway. You can tell, I mean, it it stemmed from a very strong female source way back when. And she was a a single mother uh, raising her children, correct? Right. She Interestingly enough, she was, because that was really unheard of. Her husband had had an affair, and she was like, no way. (laughs) You're leaving, and you're not seeing the children. And that was that. I mean, it is, so it's a very matriarchal family. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Sylvia True. Her book is called Where Madness Lies. In the period of time that you're at McLean's and the reader comes along with you, there is, of course, more than one epiphany and there is more healing that goes on. For you, what was the key element of healing? What happened? What event seemed to turn the switch? So for me, I think it was the sort of the the conversation. I'm just going to leave it as one big conversation. But in the conversations with my grandmother, with my mother, this revealing of the past made me feel not alone. And I think I felt so alone and ashamed because this wasn't allowed. And of course, I believe nobody in my family had ever been ill. Nobody had any problems but me. Everybody else was strong and could keep their socks pulled up or whatever was we were told, you know, pull up your socks, get a grip. And so when they revealed their own fear about mental illness, that was so incredibly illuminating for me. And it just made me feel like part of the family in a weird way. Like I wasn't the only one. I wasn't necessarily weak their fear stemmed from what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, so understanding that history just really opened Mm -hmm. me up and made me feel like I could go on. Yeah, and when one is encountering any kind of mental illness or lack of balance, what that's doing to you, and I'll speak from personal experiences, is adding to your paranoia and your fear that you're all alone. It's a a horribly uncomfortable feeling to think that uh, the world is continuing on without you. 
But when you get that sense that you're not alone, what a breath of fresh air that is. It's a step forward to healing for, for so many. It really kind of, it really brought my family, my whole family sort of out of the woods in a way. My sister actually became a child psychiatrist. She's uh, out in the Worcester area. She's pretty, she's very well respected. So, you know, if you think about it, you know, going from no child will ever see one of those people to, you know, my sister being a child psychiatrist, me talking about my journey in McLean. And another reason I, I feel, you know, I feel like it's important is I'm a teacher. I teach chemistry at Holliston High School. I'm the head of the science department there. And it's very important for me that my students understand that this, was, this is not something shameful. So even right now in, in this time of craziness and mm. pandemic, you know, we have students who are really struggling, mm. um, maybe different students than we would normally see struggle, right? For, for understandable reasons. And it's, and we have great school counselors, but it's still talked about in like whispers, like so-and-so's, you know, and not that we should be shouting about what's going on with students. I'm not saying that. But it's interesting to me that you still feel some of the underlying shame. Yes, it's much less, thank God. But it's still something that, you know, needs to be talked about, like maybe you broke an arm or you have diabetes. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. An important character in the book is based on your first husband, Tanner, and his relationship with you, with your daughter, and we get the sense that he, like so many others, really doesn't understand the pressures on you suffering from mental illness at that time. And uh, he's not alone. Tell us more about that relationship. So, yeah, it, it was a very interesting time, you know, and just like fast forward to me now in my 60s. All right. I am very close to that ex-husband of mine. And I think that you know, I, I worry that I portray, I think I portrayed him quite well, but I worry he comes off as not very understanding and no fault of his own, right? He did not understand. I did not understand. He was frightened. I was frightened. Um, he was of the belief, you know, go out and get more exercise, eat healthy. And, you know, again, just naive, like, Snap out Pull of up your kind socks. Of thing, if you right. go out and you do these things, you'll get better. And that's the, you know, that's one of the tricky things. Depression's tricky, I think, in that, you know, there's a spectrum, right? I mean, we all feel blue on certain days. And maybe those days you do need to get up and go for a walk and you'll feel better. And and that makes sense. But there are people like me who have depression where it's just it's pretty much all or nothing, right? Like there's no sort of middle ground grayish days. Uh, They're like black hole (laughs) or I'm fine. So, um, you know, his lack of understanding and my need, I think, which often saddens me when I look back. Now, I'm thrilled this all happened in that I got Erica, who's my eldest daughter for my first husband. And so you can't like, you don't, you don't want to go back and say, I don't want that to happen because then I wouldn't have Erica and, Erica's children. But I look back and I was pretty, I was depressed and desperate. And so he asked me to marry him. And, you know, 
I didn't know what else to do. I knew I couldn't function on my own. I was still trying to pretend that I was fine. I could tell things were getting worse. Um, the sleeplessness, the depression, the feeling of hopelessness, the panic. So I thought, oh, I have a good idea. I'll just get pregnant and that will fix everything. Well, <laughs> again, I didn't have anybody to talk to or to say, uh, maybe that won't. Am I sorry it happened? No, obviously, you know, look at all the beauty it's brought. But yeah, it, you know, we were both very, very, I'm going to say ignorant. Those of us who've been through it, I include myself, know that feeling of total grayness. There's no joke that's going to cheer me up. There's no exercise right. program. But there is going through the process, no matter what path you take, going through and, and out the other side that makes life a lot sweeter. Chemistry. You, you are an, uh, an acclaimed chemist, a teacher of great note. We do know a lot, much more. Uh, we do know much more now about the heredity and the factors of, of genetics when it comes to mental health, don't we? Absolutely. Like, I think back, I'm going to age myself 40 years ago when I was in college. And, uh, we're on you know, the same, we, same plan, you and me. Okay. Same, same time frame. No problem. <laughs> okay. you're, in, you're in good hands. Good company. All right. Thank you. <laughs> but anyway... You know, we were taught at that time that um, 80% of who you were was environmental and 20% was genetic. Do I have an exact, exact percent? No, obviously not. But I mean, we are so, we've come a long way in that area. And I think we recognize how much more is genetic with many, many different things. I mean, including things like alcoholism. Is it always? Absolutely not. Do both play a role? Absolutely, I think. Um, but in my family, it's clear there there's a genetic component of depression. I mean, that runs through my family. And knowing that, Sylvia, gives all of us, the, the people involved having the condition and those treating us, uh, more tools, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I. it's so interesting. Again, my daughters are going to love, hate me for this, but... <laughs> So um, I have two daughters and, and both have had different struggles with depression and anxiety. And it's interesting that my oldest daughter really got the depression side and my youngest daughter got the anxiety side. I was really lucky. I got both. Okay. But um, in raising them, because I had gone to McLean and because, you know, it just became part of my life, there was no shame. And, you know, when it was time to help my oldest daughter, you know, I, I went every which way I could, you know, I went to the psychiatrist for medicine, to the therapist, or she went to the therapist for, you know, counseling and talk therapy and to the psychic. Okay. So like I covered all mm. areas to help my children mm -hmm. so that, you know, they would understand. And that's what I want my students to understand too. There is help, you know, the first therapist you might see might not be the right one, or the first medicine might not be the right one. But the key is not to give up, and the key is to know that there really is a lot of support. And 
yeah, it's way better than it was 80 years ago. Well, that's it, the sense of gratitude that we live in the era we do. As reading in your book, you know, about Sonnenstein, which is the facility that Rigmore goes to, and it's considered the one of the best in the world, and it's you have to pay to get there and pay big to get there. But the rudimentary treatments, I mean, are just, they sound barbaric today. And even the way they classified anxiety as hysteria. Right. And, and uh, obviously they referred to people as imbeciles and all these kinds of really horrid descriptions, uh, we've come a long way, thankfully. Right. And they were considered, you know, the premier, one of the premier hospitals with all the newest available treatment. So, you know, that's what was available back then. Among other things, the book uh, accomplishes a lot. It tells us uh, a lot about the history of the Third Reich early on, the way people were treated. And it also is a poignant story of family. And I really credit you with great writing because I, I found it to be a page turner. I was really excited to see how it moved and how these characters evolved, but uh, really beautifully written. Are you, uh, I know you've written another novel as well that we mentioned in the introduction, but are you by trade uh, a chemistry teacher by day and a writer by night? You certainly have the talent to do more of this. Yes. Oh, I'd like that. Um, I am a chemistry teacher by day. <laughs> I absolutely, I, I feel like I was, I've been blessed in so many ways in terms of um, my career, in terms of work as a teacher. Uh, my, my principal better not be listening to that. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, every day going to work, it feels like occupational therapy. Like, I love going to work. Yeah. It's difficult right now because of the, you know. We right, have, pandemic and so forth, it's, yeah. It's tricky. But I love the relationships that I have with my students. And in the summers, I take um, groups of like 25 kids down to the jungle in Peru, in the Amazon. And we stay out on a boat and we do research in the jungle, which has been one of the greatest experiences to see their excitement and their enthusiasm, to travel with them to a completely different place. So, and then, yeah, I love to write. I, you know, writing has been therapy for me, obviously, because mm. this book was a family book. And even my other book is all it basically is about therapy in a way. And, you know, people, I guess my themes are the same in that it's about listening. It's about listening to the other people, um, listening and understanding. And especially in this crazy time we're in now, I just think the best thing we can all do is sit down with somebody who's on the other side or sides. I don't know how many sides there are anymore, but, uh, and really try to understand where they're coming from and try to have some sort of empathy. And I mean, that's our way forward. That's our way. That was my family's way forward. It, It took a lot. It took me going into McLean, but I think that's the way forward in so many Mm. other areas of life. It's like, let's listen to each other. Also, I think what the book accomplishes is a, a legacy built around your your relatives, particularly Rigamore, who's this poor, not poor in terms of material wealth, but right. poor because she's had this situation thrust upon her. She had an illness she couldn't control. And what we discover she's also an artist. She appreciates nature. She's got a lot of beautiful qualities. She's There's that portrait, which you describe, of her, and she was obviously physically quite stunning. And so there were a lot of things about adding life to a character, to a real person who was designated uh, a failure by society. 
It was really well right. done. She was extremely bright and yeah. talented, sensitive, really sensitive. And that's a, a crazy label to this, this whole sensitivity. And in my life, when I was young, I was often accused of being oversensitive. And, you know, when you think about that, that's such a horrible thing to be accused of. You're just being oversensitive. And it, it, it was just because I felt things. And I think she was extremely creative and sensitive and musical and talented. So, you know, yeah, she, she had all the gifts and she also had mental illness. A story that people will now know forever as you've written about her in a very honest and beautiful way. So that's kind of a nice, nice legacy to leave. Do you have a website that we can promote for the book? Yep. It's sylviatrue.com. SylviaTrue.com, which sounds like a comic book hero or heroine. <laughs> Sylvia True, Wonder Woman, part two. Uh, that's great. Uh, it's so nice to meet you and uh, to chat about this important book. I say important because it's not only a, a history that is important to tell, but it's explaining a lot to people who don't have mental illness, or maybe they do have it in the family, what it's really like. And right. you did a great job. Thank you so much for, uh, for being part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Once again, Sylvia True's book, Where Madness Lies, do check it out. And thank you for checking out my book, which is called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, selling quite well, I might add. And you can check it out at my website, jordanrich.com, or also through amazon.com. Soon, I will be uh, announcing the audiobook version. I'm in the process of recording it these days, and that's a lot of fun, too. All proceeds benefit Boston Children's Hospital, by the way. And before we sign off, a quick thank you to all of the folks who make this podcast possible. Ken Carberry at chartproductions.com. Also, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media. And most importantly, I thank you for not only downloading and subscribing, but rating and reviewing the podcast and telling your friends and neighbors about it. We appreciate it. So until next time, this is Jordan saying be well so you can do good. Take care.